You know, my mother used to say long time ago, whenever there would be any really catastrophe that was on the, in the movies or, or on the air, she would say, always look for the helpers. There, were, there will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. That's why I think that if news programs could make a conscious effort of showing rescue teams, of, of showing who, uh, medical people, anybody who is coming into a place where there's a tragedy, to be, to be sure that they include that. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. You're going to meet one of the helpers today. You're listening to The Smart Stories, Noon Adapted. So you guys recognize the guy in the clip. It was Mr. Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, classic TV show on PBS Kids. Of course, I didn't have Nickelodeon. I didn't have Cartoon Network because my parents didn't believe in the miracle of cable. They believed in the true right and virtue of public television, educational only and nothing else. So, Mr. Rogers was a great man. He had a program where he taught kids values, and he really did it in a way where it could apply to kids from all walks of life. And he wore great cardigans, too. It's something that we cannot forget. The red one with the blue tie and the white shirt, absolute favorite look. Need to wear that for my wedding. Anyway, we're going to be talking with a helper. Uh, well, really hearing a story this episode. It's Michael Nixon. He's been on the show before, but he's such a great guy. We had to have him on the show again. Don't tell him I said that. Anyway, we're going to talk about his work at the Fair Housing and Justice Center in New Jersey. He did this a couple years ago, and of course, he's doing a new gig here at the university. But you're going to hear from him right now. I think you're going to like it. Sit tight. Started law school in 2010 in Chicago at the John Marshall Law School there, right there downtown. Um, and I always, I guess for a long time, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, guess a quick aside, I, I first got interested in becoming a lawyer when I was living in Southern California with my parents, mid-90s, of course, the big O.J. Simpson case, huge case back in the day. And just watching, because it was on TV all the time, my parents loved watching it. So seeing Johnny Cochran in the courtroom. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. You know, because up to that point when you're a kid, you want to be a Power Ranger, firefighter, all that other stuff. I guess firefighter is more realistic than Power Ranger. But anyways, um, that was the first time I really latched onto like a real occupation. So my parents were like, okay, good. Like, like this kid doesn't want to be like a superhero. He wants to be something real. So from there, always knew I wanted to do law school, but really didn't know what I wanted to do. So go to law school in 2010. The first internship that I did was in, after my first year, I worked at CARE Chicago, the Council on American Islamic Relations, um, as a civil rights law clerk. Uh, and that opened my eyes to a lot of the Islamophobia and things like that that we saw, um, you know, you, you specifically deal with in that community. But one of the cases that really caught my attention while I was there was actually a case involving housing. 
and um, there was a family who was just having some issues with their landlord due to, you know, their religious affiliation. And that really stuck with me. I, I was never really exposed to, uh, on that level, how how people could be affected just in their simple housing situations, just, just simply because of their religion, their color of their skin, or whatever the case may be. So um, as that internship came to a close, I knew I wanted to learn more about that particular area of the law. And so I took a class on fair housing and fair lending, and I was really intrigued by it, started, started learning about the Fair Housing Act, you know, which was a seminal piece of legislation that passed in the wake of, you know, Dr. King's assassination back in 1968. Um, we just celebrated the 50th year of its passing, uh, the Federal Fair Housing Act. And so took a class, really learned more about some of the seminal cases, the, the, the case law itself, the, the, um, the act, the law itself, and liked the class so much that I actually decided to volunteer for our legal clinic at my school. We had a fair housing legal clinic. And so volunteered the last year and a half I was in law school there. Um, and from that point, I really knew I, I wanted to be involved in civil rights advocacy, particularly in the area of housing rights, housing discrimination cases. And so from there, um, my fiance at the time, Tassiana, got a call to become a pastor in the New Jersey area, New Jersey conference, um, actually as the first female pastor in the conference. And so it was a really exciting opportunity for her. Um, but for me, it, it sort of presented a bit of a, a quandary because, you know, her and I, we were, we were targeting Chicago as a place that we wanted to ultimately live. Um, and so we were looking at job opportunities there. And this happened probably the February before she was graduating here at Andrews and I was graduating from law school. And so we're talking a couple months before that, those May graduations. And it kind of just threw a wrench in what we thought was going to be our plans. But, you know, the more we thought about it and prayed about it, we really felt like God was calling us to the East coast. And so, um, she moves out there in June during that summer to start working. We get married in August and I move out there, of course, after we get married. And it's really nerve wracking for me because I don't have a job. <laughs> you know, she has a job. Uh, you know, she's the, the breadwinner at the time. And, um, you know, I, I really didn't know what I was going to do because at the time I was still preparing to take the New York bar. And so nobody's going to hire you with just your JD degree. You have to be bar admitted to get a legal job. And so, you know, I was taking the, the, the February bar, February 2014. And so I, I had a couple of like minor odds and ends jobs here and there. Um, but it got to the point where I just really needed something to do. Like I was spending a lot of time at the house. It was getting depressing. It was just like, you know, obviously I was helping my wife out at the church and stuff like that. But it was just like, man, what am I doing? So um, I actually ended up working a retail job. I was selling suits. And so um started doing that. I actually started, um, I'll never forget it. It was during like Thanksgiving weekend. So my first day was like Black Friday. So it was like a huge sale and stuff. And um was doing that for a couple months. Um 
But obviously, it was kind of, I mean, I would talk to my coworkers. They were all older than me. I would tell them about my educational background, and they'd just be like, well, why are you here? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, what's going on? So, anyways, I just keep doing that. I'm studying for the bar. Take the bar that February. Um, of course, as some of, as some of your listeners may know, it takes a couple months to get your scores back. And so I'm still working this job and, and, and whatnot. Get my scores back. Thank God I passed, you know, passed the New York bar. So it's kind of like, okay, I can start to really get my, get myself out there. I had talked to a lot of people about potential jobs and it just wasn't, it never turned into anything. A lot of church folk, they said they were going to help out and, you know, the whole, the whole runaround of emails and resumes and it just got really frustrating after a while. So Past the bar, but still, you know, I'm looking for a legal job now. Really start kicking into gear the search. Um, and I just remember one day talking to my wife about it and, you know, getting kind of discouraged and not really having leads. And she just said to me, um, you know, hey, why don't you just look into like that fair housing thing? Like you were really into that when we were in Chicago. Uh, is there a fair housing group in New York? Um and I hadn't thought about that, you know, at that point. And so, um, you know, I, I looked up actually right there on the spot on my phone and I came across the Fair Housing Justice Center in New York City. Um, and what I didn't know at that time was that um, someone who I had been reading about in a lot of cases that I read about in that class that I took was a gentleman by the name of Fred Freiberg. Um, and he's been doing housing discrimination cases and, and fair housing work for over 40 years. And so he's really well known and solidified in the field. And he actually was the executive director of the Fair Housing Justice Center. And so I looked it up. Anthony is wanted everywhere. Anthony's on my team. Oh, he's on my team. But recently, Anthony went with his parents to find a new place to live. It's already rented. But housing discrimination is illegal. So Anthony's parents filed a complaint, and now they have a wonderful place to live. If you believe you've been discriminated against because of your race, color, religion, national origin, sex, familial status, or disability, contact your local fair housing center. I was just like, whoa, this is a really awesome opportunity. Didn't even really know. Um, you know, that they existed. Problem was they weren't hiring. They didn't have any jobs at the time. And so, you know, I, I just concocted this email, just said, and I wrote it to Fred and just said, hey, Mr. Freiberg, um, you know, I'm a recently bar admitted attorney. Would love to just volunteer some time. I don't know if you guys have an opening or what you need, but if you have some time available, uh, you know, I would love to just come and, you know, work on some cases if you need help. Uh, he actually replied like literally maybe 20 minutes later and said, hey, Michael, um, I think I actually asked him there if you guys are hiring or something. I led with that, but I tried to soften the, the blow because I knew that'd be a no <laughs> by saying that I would also volunteer if they need that, too. And so he said, hey, you know, unfortunately, we don't have funding for, you know, a job right now. But if you are serious about volunteering, I'd love to talk to you about that. So. You know, here's our address and stuff. Here's some times I'm available. Feel free to come by and let's chat about it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to take the opportunity at this time to mention with confidence I'm working with now and I hope forever some of the greatest. Hey, this is Sid. 
the sound engineer for the smart stories. We hope you are enjoying the story so far. We will be right back after this break. I dedicate this program to the fight against crime. Not merely crimes of violence and crimes of dishonesty, but crimes of intolerance, discrimination, and bad citizenship. Crimes against America. When I met with Fred, conversation was great. Came to find out that actually like a couple months before I emailed him, they had had to let their staff attorney go because of funding. And so there was a huge backlog of work that they needed someone with legal expertise to work on that just nobody else had the time to do. And so it was actually a perfect fit. So I started going there two days a week, um, starting to work on cases. And and I'll just never forget how eye-opening the experience was. Um, you know, I, I've heard, you know, you hear about racism and you read about like the civil rights movement and you read about, you know, things like segregation in schools and in communities. Um, but I had no idea that it was happening to the degree that it was in New York City. Uh, so one of the first things I realized is that, you know, all three of the most segregated cities as it pertains to housing are in the north, New York, Chicago, and Milwaukee. Um, when we think segregation and racism, we think the south. You know, that, that's sort of the, the, um, the first inclination. But housing segregation is really a sin of the north. We're going to jump ahead to one of the cases that Michael worked on, but don't worry, I'll explain how they work. Remember those hidden camera shows that were funny for about three years? This is similar. The actors are trained to go in and request a loan, housing, etc. Each would be a different race or even disability in order to see how that property owner would treat the individual. If they are testing for discrimination with a certain race, for example, then they would allow that actor to be slightly more qualified. Of course, that actor would be black, Latino, or whatever race that they're trying to see is being discriminated on in that certain instance. They would also send in other actors in order to compare and contrast how those were treated. Of course, they would be white. It's like a Law & Order SVU episode. Remember the L.A. spinoff? Yeah, eh, that didn't last long. That joke was okay, Jordan, but you're missing an important detail. The actors were taken from the actor's fund and extensively trained for the assignment. Most importantly, the actors did not know what they were testing for, so no bias could be formed. Here is a clip from the documentary A House Divided, America Divided by Norman Lear, which will show the testing process. Fair Housing Justice Center is a nonprofit civil rights organization based here in New York City. What we did this past week here in New York is to test in a predominantly white neighborhood and sent uh, LB Williams and Norman Lear. And we actually have an audio and video account of what occurred uh, during these visits. So this is LB's recording. Hi. Are you the landlord? My wife and I are looking for a one-bedroom apartment. Last month I rented one, two months ago I rented two. Okay. At the moment I have no vacancies here. Okay, no vacancies? No, at the moment. Okay, uh, when do you think you have one that, that would be available? One bedroom I don't expect, two bedrooms I don't expect. Maybe a studio, middle of next month. Okay.
He clearly said there was no one-bedroom available. Uh, clearly. He said it several times. So this was um, basically Tuesday night, and then Wednesday morning, you visited the same landlord. Hey, how you doing? Hey, my wife was out here the other day, and I guess she, I guess she saw that sign. So yeah, uh, we were looking for a one-bedroom apartment. I'm going to have a studio here, and I have one bedroom in Pelham Bay. Uh huh. I think I know where that is. And, and the Probably studio the here. Room. Studio I'm going to have end of the month here. Uh-huh. Terrific. Okay. I thank you very much, sir. You got told about a studio apartment in that building and that was coming a, available. A one-bedroom apartment was available, which he's willing to show me, and a studio. Yeah, and the one-bedroom, according to the recording, is in uh, Pelham Bay on, on uh, Wellman Avenue. Another right. predominantly white and Last night, the way uh, LB was treated, was that a surprise to you? No, it was not, because we had previously investigated this building and done multiple uh, African-American white tests at this building, and the exact conduct that we observed on your test, we observed three additional previous times. The way this housing provider does business is to discriminate against African-Americans. No, isn't that against the law? It is. So why hasn't something been done about it? Well, I think part of it goes to this issue of the type of discrimination it is. If LB had been a bona fide apartment seeker, he would have had no idea that the agent was lying to him about availabilities. So you'd have no inclination to file a housing discrimination complaint. So everything we're talking about, how, how pervasive is this? I think it still accounts for much of the segregation that we see in our metropolitan regions. It's, it's one of the prominent factors, I think, in why we don't move more quickly toward a more integrated society. I think people of color carry additional baggage through no fault of our own um, that other people, people, that white people don't worry about, essentially. There's this issue that you always have to be aware of that someone is going to look at you differently than, not for what you are, essentially, but for what you look like. It always saddens me, but consistently says to me, as an African-American, that I'm less than. And that's a horrible feeling to, to, uh, to feel. You deserve a lot of credit for doing this. I feel like I have to, you know, it's, it's, it's my way of making a difference. I think hopefully shining a light on the problem in this forum by bringing the lawsuits that we subsequently will in response to these situations uh, will show the government that it is possible to uncover this discriminatory conduct, but you've got to devote the enforcement resources to do it. We spoke yesterday. I stopped by. I was looking for an apartment, that one-bedroom apartment. My, my wife had seen the sign. Can we make a date to uh, look at that? We, we're interested. The time has come to confront the landlord who discriminated against LB, right. telling him no one-bedroom apartments were available. 
I will see you at 9.30 at 2854. Thank you. I must say I'm good at this. <laughs> I spent my career creating characters whose lives would shine a light on our divided society. The point was to move beyond the divisions, but being a part of this experiment has shown me that racism still stains our country. Through subtle words and gestures that shut people of color out of neighborhoods and out of opportunity, the landlord's actions placed me on one side of the divide and LB on the other. Now I want to see how he will answer for himself. With a hidden camera and a producer posing as my daughter, we continue the charade as he shows us an apartment in the building. remember that face because he came looking for an apartment just the other day and you told him that the one bedroom or the studio was available i didn't have no one bedroom you have one at wellman avenue that we were supposed to see today i'm sorry to uh, cost you this way but there were no blacks in the building and we're not going to rent the blacks in the building come with me come with me the landlord says he'll take us to meet some of his black tenants. But after we enter the building, he changes his mind and says he doesn't want to disturb them. He lied, I believe. And he represents a good deal of America. And I'm, I'm not sad because they're bad guys. I'm sad because we don't have a culture that discusses us with them and with uh, the so-called good guys. You know, we're all going to have to know about it, think about it, talk about it before we ever get past it. I feel sadder for having done it because this is our America and it isn't what we promised. Again, here's Michael. Um, but the one case that I, I really want to share with you that really stuck with me and it really taught me actually the importance of allyship um, is a case that involved a woman by the name of Allison Brown. Allison Brown was a Caucasian woman uh, who was looking for housing in the city and uh, her and her husband um, were just looking to move to a newer building 
And so they moved into this this building, um, and I'm forgetting exactly where it was located right now, uh, but they moved into the building, and as they were moving in, uh, they were greeted by some neighbors of theirs, and their neighbors, who were also who also happened to be white, uh, remarked to them, oh, I'm so glad that you guys, um, you know, that our landlord decided to rent to you. I'm so glad that you guys are here. Um, and they said, oh, okay, you know, thank you. That's that's nice. We're glad to be here too, kind of a thing. And then, you know, the neighborhood, the neighbor got a little more comfortable and, and you know, got a little closer and, you know, did the good old whisper. Because, you know, sometimes when you say, <laughs> whenever folks are saying something they're not supposed to, they, they get that little whisper and they lean forward in and they're like, um, yeah, because um, there was a black family that was interested in this in this unit. And, you know, our landlord was pretty stressed out about it. So, you know, and we were getting stressed about it, too. So we're really glad that they found you guys. You know, that we're, we're really good that this worked. We're really glad that this worked out. And so that's one of those comments that, you know, I'm sure are uttered in offices, in hallways, you know, in lunchrooms, by water coolers all across our country pretty much every day amongst, you know, people in a monolithic setting or monoethnic setting, to be more specific, it would have been very easy for Allison to just sort of shrug that off, ignore it, and just kind of continue on with their lives. Um, but this comment really, really bothered her as it became apparent that she was benefited by the racism of the landlord who didn't want to rent to someone who was black and who hadn't for years, and no one else in the building was black, as, it, as, as we came to find out, uh, the fact that she benefited from that racism bothered her. And she didn't, she, she just said, you know, this isn't right, I have to do something about it. And so she reached out to us, she called the Farage and Justice Center, she, she um, made an intake, and we did an investigation to see, you know, to corroborate the claim, and we did tests which showed that um, you know, black testers who showed up to the building were lied to, were lied to about availabilities, while their Caucasian counterparts were told the truth. Um, and so, based upon that evidence, as well as the experience that Allison shared with us, we were we were also able to find out who the family was that was interested in renting that was denied that opportunity. Fair Housing Act doesn't just protect you know people of color or whatever the case may be, um, it's, it's there to protect everyone. And so everyone, whether you're, you know, part of the majority group or minority groups in this country, um, you have the right to live in communities where um, they're open and accessible and, you know, the rights of others that are around you aren't infringed upon. And the Fair Housing Act also has this really cool provision where it also allows you to, to help others assert their fair housing rights, you know? So again, it's that allyship. And so we brought that lawsuit and, um, you know, of course, after the landlord, the, the defendants in the buildings heard the recordings and then saw the evidence that we had, they wanted to settle. Um, and so we were able to settle the case favorably. And, and Allison decided to take things even a step further because of course, as a plaintiff in the case, she was rewarded a certain amount of money she donated that entire amount to the Fair Housing Justice Center. Um, 
And she still lives in that building. So now she's living in this building where her neighbors, you know, obviously have a problem with her because of the fact that, you know, she popped the bubble on the little utopia that they had where everyone in the building looked like them because now she's opening up units in that building which will which people of color will have access to now because we're scrutinizing them more um and beyond that she not only donated money to the fhjc but she also decided to become a member of our board and so she's a member of the Fair Housing justice center board of directors now um so yeah, that was one of the most amazing cases that I think I came across while I was there. It taught me so many different things, um, you know, not just about, um, you know, standing up for oneself, but also standing up for the other. And what does that truly look like? What are we willing to put on the line for someone else? How how much discomfort are we willing to to throw upon ourselves in order to hopefully create more fairness and equity and comfort for others in the future. If you want to learn more about the Fair Housing and Justice Center, go to fairhousingjustice.org. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Stay smart.